Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Advantage. I'm your host, Michael Fiddle. Today is Wednesday, March 29th, and on today's episode, we are going through the six different types of bettors in the sports gambling market. Before we get to the bulk of the episode, and I think this is going to be a very good, very important episode, get to know yourself better as a better type of stuff, get to know the people around you and how they're operating, get to know some insights into the way I operate and the way I view myself as a better in this space, how I label myself, what category I fit into, which categories I like, which ones I fucking hate, and which one I'll never be because I'm not good enough. You guys are all thinking, Mike, not good enough at an aspect of gambling? Yep, there are some. I'll explain it in a sec. Before we get to the the good stuff, let me, as always, remind you guys, follow me on Twitter, at mfiddle14. I do feel like most of you guys are following me on Twitter at this point. It is where all my podcast links are tweeted out. Sometimes I appear on someone else's podcast, and I'll tweet out that link as well. It is where all of my bets are posted. Of course, those bets are simply screenshots from the Sports Ethos Wager Pass and Discord channel. So if you want to get access to all of my thoughts and my T's and P's around the sport of NBA or gambling or NFL or whatever's going on at the time, that's where you'd find me. Get in the Sports Ethos Wager Pass and Discord channel. We will have some important and exciting announcements in the coming weeks. I am working on getting you guys a tracker. If you are in the Sports Ethos Wager Pass and Discord channel, Working on getting you guys a fully coded Google Sheet tracker that will allow you to, again, get to know yourself better as a better. That will improve our hit rate. That will dictate which types of bets we should lean towards and gravitate to. So we are going to give out a fully coded Google document, Google Excel sheet. I'm not really sure what the name of it is. I'm not too great with Excel myself, although I do know how to use it because I've been doing it for a really long time. So I will be doing a podcast episode once that tracker is released as to how to actually use it, going through all the formulas that are embedded into the rows and columns. So if you are listening to this episode and you do not currently track your bets, I would highly consider signing up for the Sports Ethos Wager Pass and Discord channel. Third thing, and this is probably the biggest thing for me, those first two things, follow me on Twitter and join the Sports Ethos Wager Pass and Discord channel. Probably ultimately for you, right? Probably ultimately for you to get access to all of the right things. Lastly, third, for me, little favor to ask. If you are listening to this podcast, whatever podcast platform you are listening to it on, please go to the show homepage and leave me a written review. The podcast has definitely been growing over the last few weeks and months. I love to see it. But now I'd really love to start jacking up some of the reviews left for me the shares to, you know, send it to your friend if you know they're a good sports gambler too or interested in learning about this stuff. I would really start to love to grow the pod audience. And one way for you to help me do that is simply leave me a five stars and a written review. If you don't think I'm worth a five stars, then you could just wait to the next episode in which you do think I am worth a five stars and give it to me then. All right, let's get on to the meat of the episode. I do think this is going to be an episode where you may have to listen to it twice Because it's very important stuff. I'm not giving out picks here, but I'm going behind the curtain as to why, as to the way my mind works in evaluating things, into the way I'm reading other people's write-ups on Twitter, because everyone's giving their picks out on Twitter. Everyone's including their write-ups. You guys know I have a a nightly write-up on Twitter. But like, 
we need to you know, step back and evaluate, if I'm going to tail this person, how are they gambling? What is their approach to this market? How are they reading things? Because if I'm going to put my money where their mouth is, you should understand where their thought process is coming from. So the best way to do this, we are going to go one through six in the order of, I think, the worst to the best type of gambler. I'm going to go explain how each one starts to level up on one another. And you can kind of envision it like uh, a six-circle Venn diagram. How, like, there's some overlaps between these categories. I don't know why I'm waving my finger in a circle to myself on the Zoom camera. I look like an idiot because none of you guys can see me right now. So imagine a two-Venn diagram, but it going six circles deep. So that's what we're going to do. And in the first circle... We're throwing the hooligans. We are throwing the dumbest people in the market out there. You guys know who it is. The first group of sports bettors in the marketplace are the public. They are, like I like to say, the hooligans. The public are complete buffoons. These are the people that bet parlays. These are the people that take juiced alternate lines. If Donovan Mitchell's points prop is 26 and a half, minus 110, you know these public people are grabbing the Donovan Mitchell to score over 20 at minus 250. Donovan Mitchell combined with Julius Randle, combined with Jalen Brown to all have 20 points boosted odds on the parlay. If you are betting those bets, you are part of the public. The public often finds themselves on the same side as the major sports headlines. If you hear Stephen A. Smith rambling about how disappointing the Timberwolves are and how Cat and Gobert can't play together and how it's a disgrace to basketball and he's slamming on the table and he's doing all Stephen A. Smith rants. And then you go to the sports book and you see, oh, I'm definitely fading the Timberwolves. You're part of the public. If you look at the odds, this is like the, the basic premise. If you look at the odds and you simply say, oh, I think this team is better than this team. That line doesn't seem right. And you bet the line simply by looking at the sports book and thinking your eyes are better at pricing and predicting sports outcomes than the companies worth multiple millions and billions of dollars with hundreds of employees, with computer algorithms, with professional odd, odds makers doing this for a living for a long time. Then you are a loser. And that's what you will be when you bet long term as part of the public. People in the public bet parlays and then cash them out when they are one leg away from hitting, claiming that they want to lock in profit. Public people watch their bets live and then cash out or hedge the other side when things start to look good. Oh my God, look at this total. I was on the under 238 and after three quarters, the live line is 208. Let me take the over 208 so I lock in profit. Nope, that's stupid. Because inherently, you're giving up value on a ticket that looks great, live line, that has one quarter left, that's asking them to throw up 72 points in the fourth quarter. So, I just worked myself up, like, in the first seven minutes of this podcast. With all of that said, with how clearly I think the public are hooligans, buffoons, stupid idiots... Pawns, whatever word you want to call them. We have to remember that this is a market. 
And the basic premise of any sports book's business model is to get equal money on both sides of the line and have the losers pay the winners, and then they take a 5% cut of all the bets. So while I hate seeing people make bets like public hooligans, absolute schmucks, I have to realize that I also love it, and it provides an opportunity to a smarter mind like myself. So notice that when I say that, I say it's the basic premise of sports books to have the losers pay the winners on a given line in a given game. It's not always how they operate, and we will get to that later this episode. But to define the public in a general sphere, parlays, looking at the odds and using the eye test, like taking heavy juice lines and not understanding how drastically that changes the implied probability and the needed hit rate. People who bet the public don't care if the line is minus 115 or minus 110. For someone like me, that makes an appropriate level of difference. It makes a difference in accordance to the amount the odds have changed. So, do I consider myself part of the public? Honestly, sometimes. Sometimes when I like look at a line, I'm like, why is Denver only favored by 2.5 in this spot. I mean, Denver's amazing. they like the best team, blah, blah, blah. But I don't often bet into my public feelings. I will look at the sports book and, and have those thoughts, but I'll catch myself in that thought process and be like, wait, what does the numbers say? So when I actually place a bet, unless I'm willingly saying, hey, I'm going contrarian here, then I'm often not buying into my public mindset. I understand that it's nearly impossible not to think like a public hooligan when we come to sports. We don't inherently know all the trends, all of the you know models and algorithms that are going into predicting such outcomes. We just know it based on our own inherent sports knowledge. So unless you're studying film, unless you're ripping through tape, unless you know matchups and advanced stats offhand, then the way you think is probably public but you have to ask yourself, is that also the way you bet? So anytime I'm placing a bet, there's my calculator's out. There's so much more work that I'm doing. There's so much more research that goes into it. There's line shopping. There's I'm, I'm on six different websites checking the odds at the same time, looking at the handles and the indicators and all that stuff. So while I think like a public schmuck, I certainly don't bet like one. If you find yourself part of this betting public, the first few steps to climb on out of that hole is to stop betting parlays, generally stick to just straightforward lines. Don't play a money line minus 400, play the spread. Don't play an alternate spread points prop, play the straight points prop if that's what you want to take. Evaluate how many overs you are playing in comparison to how many unders you are playing. Did you know that generally unders hit more than overs, but the public loves to smash them overs. We root for scoring. It's more fun to watch. Fuck that. It's more fun to win. I'd rather bet an under and win than bet an over, root, have fun rooting, and then watch it lose. Doesn't sound like fun to me. Track your bets. Have everything tracked. Start to get to know yourself and how you succeed in this space. What is your hit rate in various styles of bets? What sport is best for you? Are you better at attacking totals, spreads, props, money lines, 
You need to understand yourself so that you can play into those angles more successfully. The second type of better in the sports betting market is someone who's playing into trends. Now, I believe this is a basic step up from public betting, but I also still think it tends to be a floating and slightly losing approach to sports betting. You see a lot of trends betters in the startup sharp world on Twitter. The people who create a Twitter account want to become an influencer or a sharp and are posting their write-ups and are checking box scores and are explaining what's happened in the last 10 games and why you should take this bet. Generally, those are trends betters. Their write-ups sound something like this. In nine of the last 10 games, Jaden Ivey has gotten over 30 minutes, and I believe if he sustains this playing time, he will reach the over in his points, rebounds, and assist prop. In eight of the last 11 games, Laurie Markkinen has scored over 25.5 points, and thus I am taking the over for his points tonight, given the line is at 25.5 and is minus 120 to the over. You hear... A lot of that. I'm not sure if you could tell by the tone of my voice if I'm a fan of that or not. I am very much not a fan of trends betters. In fact, I probably hate these schmucks more than I hate public people because the public people know what they're doing half the time is dumb and irrelevant. They're the people who say like, yeah, I'm going to play a lottery ticket. I know it's stupid and it's probably not going to work out, but I'm going to do it anyways. To those people, I'm like, you do you. I'm at a loss for words here. Trends people are the ones who think they're like the smartest guy in the shop. But inherently, they're completely wasting their time and investing their own research and their energy and their own mental capacity into data points that are irrelevant for predicting the outcome of the next game. Because if you go back to my original point in public betting, that ultimately, you are looking at the last 10 box scores. And whatever you're thinking and drawing a statistical conclusion... You are not better than the odds makers doing that. They certainly have the last 10 box scores too. They know what Jaden Ivey's playing time has been over the last 10 games. So for you to predict that you think he's going to go over in his PRA, combined prop, points, rebounds, assists, because of his playing time, is already priced into the line that you're taking. So every time I see someone explain how many times it would have hit over in the last 10, I think, Well, that's great if you were betting it, but it's completely irrelevant to the next game because obviously you and the book are both considering it, and thus it's priced into the current line. If you don't think that the outcome of the last five or the last 10 games is priced into the current line, I mean, come on. Yikes. If you think that you can conclude what line should be based on the last five or 10 games better than the book's, I mean, come on. Yikes. People who bet trends, again, seem to play more overs than unders. They are a step up from a public better, but they're still in that realm. We know public people love overs, even though, again, unders provide more values. However, the one reason why trends betters tend to do a little bit better than a public better is because they basically play straight bets and standard lines. And that's why they do a better job of floating. They'll stay in that relative 50% hit rate by popping lines that are straight bets. They're not playing 
crazy parlays. Because once you put in that crazy parlay, even citing what's happened in the last 10 games, you've shoved yourself back over, down a tier, into the Venn diagram circle below you, into that public space. So trends better is not betting parlays, but the, the reason for the bets that they are taking are also completely irrelevant. That makes sense? I hope so. If you go on Twitter and you see someone telling you how much playing time someone's got in the last 10 games or how much scoring they've got in the last 10 games, then think to yourself, well, I hope you've been betting it the last 10, but it doesn't mean we need to bet it on the 11th. The third type of handicapper in the sports betting world is someone who's betting systems. Now, systems cappers, I have finally turned the corner to being in a good mood when I talk about these different styles of handicappers. I like a system handicapper. I tend to, I tend to be one in some instances. This is the first bucket that I'll put myself in. I, I guess I put myself in the public bucket saying sometimes I think like one, but I do not bet like one. So for the betting space, I am not in the public. For systems, they tend to be similar to trends. So I hope I could properly explain the difference. But a system is more situational and a trend is more direct. So a system handicapper will come up with a series of rules. And when a line fits those series of rules, it becomes a trigger to place a bet. So for an example, it'll sound something like this. In the NBA, a home underdog coming off of a home loss that is not a back-to-back versus a team coming off of a road win and playing in the second leg of a back-to-back. In these situations, we play the underdog to bounce back with home court, rest advantage, and public backing a team off a win. Now, I don't know if that's real. I just made that up off the spot. In the NFL, it might sound something like this. An East Coast team traveling to the West Coast and playing in the 1 p.m. window with a spread below home team minus 7. Let's go over the rules for that one. This is an NFL system for you guys. It's actually one that I play fairly often. An East Coast team is the first rule, traveling to the West Coast. So, Giants going to Seattle. Jets going to 49ers. Patriots at Rams. We're thinking cross-country road trips, playing in the 1 p.m. window. So when the games first kick off on the East Coast, they are in that game. So it is a 10 a.m. game for all of those East Coast people who just showed up to travel for the game and now are waking up off schedule and playing at a different time. Sounds tiring. With a spread below home team minus seven. So... The book is not already pricing in a blowout. The Rams are favored over the Giants by four and a half in this hypothetical situation. The Giants are traveling from New York to LA. They're playing in the 1 p.m. game. And we are going to take the Rams to cover the spread beyond what the number gives because it's below seven. That is a system. I really like systems. You can find systems that work and back them long term and be profitable. In fact, I have created a few of my own systems that I play regularly. If you tell me, you play them too. But, but, for this podcast, I am going to keep some of the rules of the systems that I created a secret. I don't want to overcomplicate things here. Maybe we'll do a future episode to explain some of the systems that I've created. But, 
if you've ever taken an alt spread with me, if you've ever seen me sell points, if you've ever seen me take a basketball team plus 4.5 and then flip it around and get them minus 3.5 for nice plus odds, you have played into the fiddle system with me. The best part about systems, again, going back to what I just said, you can play them long-term and be profitable. You can backtrack certain systems and show them to be profitable. Different than a trends better because a trends better is looking at the last 10 to predict the next 11th. We can go back seasons. We can go back years. We can do it for the last five months. We can literally backtrack systems and say, has this been successful? And if it's been successful, if we're noticing a trend, so you're noticing something, it's not a trend betting, but you're noticing something develop in the way statistical outcomes happen in sports, you can start to formulate a system of rules, and then you can go check if it's worked in the past, and then you can start to play it in the future. So when I created my system, I went back four years. It took me a while, but I went back four seasons in the NBA, and I calculated, how would this system have done every single month? There were two losing months in the entire four years. And thus, I sometimes play my system. Although, we're talking Venn diagrams here, right? So the, the line between trends and systems becomes looking at some historical data and trying to predict future outcomes with it. So it's more situational than direct. It's not directly applied to a player. It's more long-term than short-term. But there is some similarities between someone who's betting trends and someone who's betting systems. Their write-ups may float in a similar space and sound similar. It might be hard to decipher, is that a system play or is that a trends play? So you have to really sit back and say, if you're going to bet into it, if you're going to tail somebody, try and understand if it's more situational, if it's more specific to one player, or if it's more contextual to what's happening, and you could repeat this if you swap out teams and players, right? You can't swap out Lori Marketing for X player, but you could swap out the different East Coast team traveling to the West Coast with a spread below minus seven. You know, the spread could be minus five and a half. The spread could be minus three and a half. Could be plus two. Doesn't matter. It still fits the basic premise of rules. The next circle that we are moving up to, the next ring, this could be like a like a Olympic logo. You know how you have the five circles? And then the sixth one is just fucking off to the side. We'll get to them in a second. We are now up to the fourth ring. And this is where I am, fellas. I am partly a system capper, but in my heart, in my core, to my core, in my soul, what burns deep inside of me, I am a line movement capper. Line movement cappers operate under this basic premise. I am noticing a shift happening in the market, and I am going to place this bet because I believe I am still ahead or at, still at the beginning of a wave of shifting odds. The odds on this bet are going to further, and therefore, if I place this bet now, it will gain value before the game tips off. Probably a little bit confusing. Let's pull an example. On Tuesday, March 21st, 
I placed a bet on the Golden State Warriors minus 1.5 to beat the Dallas Mavericks for their game on Wednesday, March 22nd. The line would eventually close at Warriors minus 3.5, meaning the ticket that I had was two points better than the closing line because of line movement. Again, I am a line movement capper. I am noticing a shift, the wave, the, the juice changing. So I'm going to get in as that wave is going so that once it stops, once it reaches shore, I have a good line. This is what I refer to as plus CLV. CLV stands for closing line value. That plus sign means I'm on the positive side of closing line value because the line I have is two points better than what the current offering on the market is. Anyone and everyone who currently bets Warriors minus 3.5, if they win, I also win. There is no world where a Warriors minus 3.5 ticket cashes and my Warriors minus 1.5 ticket doesn't cash. There are also worlds where the Warriors win that game by two and I still win even though the people who got the closing line didn't win. That's when it lands in between the CLV range. So getting ahead of the market and having a better number becomes pretty freaking important. I have noticed that NBA games happen to fall between their opening and closing line about 4% of the time. So if I get on the better side of the CLV, then I'm juicing my win rate up up to about 4%, which is huge in sports gambling. When we know we need a 52.4% threshold to be profitable, if I'm just taking myself from 50 to 54 by being on the right side of the line, I just went from a losing gambler to a winning gambler simply by getting a better number and knowing when to bet. A lot of this is timing. Line movement cappers are all about timing their bets. I am constantly betting things at one in the morning on the West Coast, four in the morning on the East Coast, before the public wakes up the next day, checks the lines, starts betting certain angles, and drastically changes things. I am ahead of the market. That is the whole name of the game to a line movement capper. Let's go back to that example. I had a plus two CLV on that Warriors minus 1.5. So I can use my gambling math to realize, like I said, I always have a calculator out when I'm placing a bet. I am calculating implied probability of these lines. I know that a minus 110 line has an implied probability of 52.4%, but a minus 160 line has an implied probability of 61.5%. So the reason why I used that minus 160 wasn't arbitrary. It's because that's what my Golden State minus 1.5 ticket was. If I checked the live odds, the alternate spreads, and I found my exact bet, even though the current line was Warriors minus 3.5. So it was Warriors minus 3.5. I went to FanDuel. I went to the alternate spreads options. I found what Warriors minus 1.5 is offered at. And it was juiced to minus 160. Bet 160 to win 100 instead of bet 110 to win 100. Except I'm on the line where I have it at minus 110. So I am going into that game when the game tips off with a ticket that requires a 52.4% hit rate to be profitable. However, the implied probability of the ticket that I have was 61.5 live at the time of the game. 
Therefore, I beat the market and I made a good bet. I believe this to be true regardless of the results of that game. I don't care what happens in a one-game sample size. I won't tell you that it's a good bet because the bet won. Because then a 10-leg parlay would be a good bet if all 10 legs won. And it's not. 10-leg parlay is dumb as fuck. It'll never be a good bet. So let's go back to the basics. Line movement cappers try and get ahead of the market and have the vast majority of their bets contain plus CLV and an implied probability of the pregame odds above the needed hit rate to be profitable long-term. And lastly, you want your highest exposure bets to be tied to the tickets that you will most confidently gain CLV. That might also be confusing. Let's break that down. Quick example. Tonight... I am on Rockets plus 12 and a half, current lines at 11. I am on Warriors, uh, no, I'm Timberwolves Suns over 234 and a half, lines at 235. You ask me what I like personally better right now, I personally prefer that Wolves Suns over 234 and a half. It is my favorite bet on the slate that I'm working with. However, I have half a point of CLV there. When in the Rockets game, I have one and a half points of CLV. So I have three times as much value, if we're talking points and ticks, on the Rockets line as I do the Wolves line. So even though I like that Wolves line more personally, I have to remember that that, that's Mike the public schmuck thinking. That's Mike's sports takes thinking. That's not numbers talking. That's not odds speaking to us. That's not the calculator showing us what's the right play. The right idea would be to have more exposure tied to the tickets that are going to gain CLV. Of course, when you are placing these bets, you can't know how much plus CLV these are going to gain. Otherwise, I'd have a zillion bets with plus CLV and no bets with minus CLV. That's just not how this works. It is a market. It fluctuates. Sometimes you get ahead of it. Sometimes you think you're going to get ahead of it and you end up behind it. The vast majority of tickets that I place are plus CLV tickets. I have four bets tonight that are all four plus CLV tickets. But again, we want to tie our exposure to the tickets that we are most confident will gain the most CLV. When I place a max three-unit bet, I'm rest assured that I'm getting like two or three points of CLV. That is the goal, not a half ticket. If I only end up with a half tick of CLV, I'm a little concerned going into a three-unit max exposure game. I'd rather have three-quarters of a unit on it. I'm not as far ahead as the market as I expected. I don't have as much value in my implied probability and plus expected value in that. So, for that reason, exposure tied to CLV, plus CLV being the goal, long-term being more important than a one-game sample size, if you are consistently going into games when they tip off with an implied probability that exceeds the implied probability of the bet that you have, so the implied probability of the live odds exceeding the odds that you took, That is plus expected value. So I'll do one more example here because this is the world where I live in, so it's really easy for me to talk about this stuff. Hopefully, it's a little bit easier for you guys to understand because I should be better at explaining the stuff I inherently know the best. Last night, I grabbed Oklahoma City Moneyline minus 400. 
Now, a minus 400 line carries an implied probability of 80%, right? Because if we're constantly betting, if every single bet that we're taking is minus 400, then we need to win 80% of our bets to, to break even, to, to, to not lose money. When that game tipped off, OKC was minus 450. A minus 450 line has a 81.8181818181, put the bar over it and have it repeat forever, implied probability. So if I'm comparing my two bets, I had a plus 1.81818181, throw the bar over it and let it repeat forever, expected value. Plus 1.8% because the difference between my implied probability was 80% and the live odds was 81.8. P.S. That bet ended up losing. Plus EV did not make a difference. In a one-game sample size, you would say, that's a bad bet. However, if you told me on every bet in my life I could take minus 400 and it would land at minus 450 before tip, I'd be very profitable. Finally, we have gotten to the point where we can talk about models handicappers. These are the cream of the crop. Successful models cappers are the smartest people in the room. They are the people who have created algorithms and simulators, and they're playing out certain uh, scenarios to come up with their own numbers to price various lines. They see Pacers plus six open on the books, they run their simulator and get a price on a line where it should be Pacers plus 4.2. And thus, a successful model capper would bet Pacers plus 6, Pacers plus 5.5, Pacers plus 5, Pacers plus 4.5, until it gets close to where it should be. These models capper, cappers generally come from sharp groups. They have a lot of brains and brawn behind them. This is not one Joe Schmo coming up with a model and chugging away. You will find that few and far between. Models cappers are the ones who move the lines because when they place a bet, they are betting limits, high exposures, and also because the sports book is recognizing a bet coming in from a sharp group and moves the lines accordingly. There's a symbiotic relationship between these two groups. The book takes information from these sharp groups to help price a line. So that's why you get lower limits in the beginning and higher limits as you get close to tip because even though the book set a line, they want help pricing where it should be. So if they set that Pacers plus six, even though it should be Pacers plus 4.5-ish, they're going to take in less money and help that line get there because they're using the sharp groups that bet in them to gain information in the market and say, okay, we should, this line should be closer to 4.5. And once it settles on 4.5 and they stop getting tons of exposure coming in from the sharp group, then the bet limit starts to really open. Then they're going to start taking in a lot more public money or a lot, you know, be willing to take in much bigger bets from other sharp groups because they believe it's at that sharpest point of the line. Personally, I follow and track two people who directly use models. The key, if you are directly tailing a models capper, I don't straight tail these people, but I have I keep my eye on them because I respect what they are doing, is you must have an awareness of what factor or factors 
the model is keying in on. So for example, one of the models I follow, or one of the people who uses a model that I follow, is Warren Sharp of the Sharp Football Analytics Group. You've heard me talk about him probably a lot. I've mentioned his name quite a few times on this podcast. He emphasizes pass rate on first downs and average third down distance. He loves teams that throw on first down and put them in very short yardage third down situations and avoid third and longs. For these reasons, I am very aware of what totals someone like Warren is betting because he is so much smarter than me when it comes to understanding which games the ball is going to be moving and where it's going to be slowed. Then, in turn, because I'm following a model's capper, I'm understanding what angles he's betting into, I can then roll over some of those ideas and target DFS players, player props, fantasy sports, and obviously my own straight bets in accordance with the way he's seeing a line where it should be priced, where it should move, and he's dictating some of the movement to that point. Although I follow, like I just said, two models cappers pretty closely, remember how I said there's a Venn diagram and there's some similarities and there's some differences in both. Here's where the, the line movement capper and the model capper overlaps. Because the models better are the ones moving the lines, and I am betting based on line movement, inherently, they are informing a lot of the bets that I place. And I don't always know the why behind it, because when I'm following into line movement, because of a model's capper moving the line, I don't always understand who it's, who it's doing it and what their model emphasizes. If I was going to tail one of Warren's straight bets that he gives out, then yeah, I'd like to understand why he believes that way. If I'm going to rely on the market showing me, then I have as much information as I need. Because if the house trusts it, then I can trust it too. If the book has said, if the operator is saying, we, we took in a bet from this sharp group and we want to move the line because we respect this sharp group. We know that they have a consistent uh, track record of success. We know that they should be uh, recognized as having the ability to move lines, not only because the volume of money that they are betting, but because we've tracked their bets for years and clearly they're betting limits and doing really well. This is a sharp group. So the book is going to move a line that's coming in from a sharp group and then I'm going to pick up on that line movement. So just because the book trusts it, I know that I can too. I will never be a model capper. I am not going to come up with my own way to target defensive rebound rate combined with turnovers or fast break points combined with you know timeouts used in the second half and successful challenge rate. I don't, I don't know that stuff. But I do know how to absorb the information from the market of people who are that much smarter than me to say, okay, I recognize that that's where your head is at. Even if I don't have the exact pinpoint reason, I will follow you into that waters because the book is showing, hey, you could trust that guy. So if the book's telling me I can trust him, I will. Okay. The Olympic logo is now done. We have gone over public, the hooligans. We have gone over trends, 
the hooligans who don't know they're hooligans. We have gone over the systems cappers, the people who are playing rules and triggering bets based on series of rules. We have learned about line movement cappers, people like myself who are targeting plus CLV and changes in implied probability. And then we've come to the top, model cappers, the cream of the crop, the people with their own algorithms, their own simulators who can price lines themselves. But we said we had six circles. Who the fuck is that last circle? The Olympic logo is done. There's that one circle hanging off to the side. Do you remember in the beginning of this episode when I said the basic premise of sports books is to get equal money on both sides of the line and have the losers pay the winners? And then they essentially just charge a middleman tax? Okay. That is the basic premise, but it is not always true. The last circle is the house. There are many of times when the house is willing to gamble. We see this when we peg reverse line movement in the line movement cappers, and the house is willing to take on a seriously large handle from the public on one side and fade them. We see this sometimes when the sharps and public are aligned, and even with a number moving, the handle on one side is still significantly higher than the other, and simply, there's really nothing the book can do to get people to bet the other side. So, let's check FanDuel right now. FanDuel is reporting 69% of the money is on the Milwaukee Bucks, minus 16. However, line just moved to 15.5, which makes it easier for people to back the huge road favorite that are the Milwaukee Bucks. The book is asking for more money. They've already gotten nearly 70% of money on Milwaukee, yet they've made the line even easier for you to bet on Milwaukee, going from minus 16 to minus 15 and a half. They want you to give them your bucks money. The house is gambling here completely. They're saying, give, give us your bucks money, and it informs me as a line movement capper to take the Detroit Pistons. If the house is taking a side and I'm noticing it, I'll side with the house and I will go with the reverse line movement. However, while me and the house are both on the same side for this game, we have to remember I have minus 110 odds, which correlates to, yep, you said it, 52.4% implied probability. The house gets plus 110 on everything, right? So they only need to hit 47.6% on the times they choose to gamble. And when they choose to gamble, they likely hit above the 52.4% hit rate, which makes for two things. Damn, the house must make a lot of money. And also, it's probably worth it for me to follow them into those waters. So that is these six different types of sports bettors in the market. Hooligans, trends, systems, line movement cappers, model cappers, and finally, the fucking house. You think we should do like a few examples and have you guys tell me or just like like a fill-in-the-blank worksheet to try and figure out whose bets these are? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. I'm going to come up with five examples and you tell me what kind of better places this 
It's going to be one example for each, and I'm not going to be the house because the house is just on the receiving end of any of these bets that are placed. The first example, and I'm going to give you guys the write-up, an example of a write-up, and you guys tell me which bucket of handicapper this would fit into. The line opened at minus 4. It sits at minus 4.5 across all of the books now. So I'm grabbing it and following early steam, which is important here because we know in the NBA, 5 is the most common spread to push. So getting the 4.5 would secure a win and not a push if you got the hook. Grabbing the minus 4.5 line. That is a blank type of capper. Next one. 76ers have their third road game in four days, including playing in each time zone, and their next opponent is favored by less than six points. That is a blank capper. Luke Kennard has hit three threes in seven straight games. So I'm taking his over 1.5 threes prop at minus 180 tonight. Lock it in because I'm a blank handicapper. Memphis is playing tonight without John Moran. I'm taking the Clippers. It's funny that I chose that one for this example because... We all know how good Memphis is without John Morant. And lastly, according to my simulator running this game a thousand times, the average total was 211.8. So with a line currently priced at 214, I'm taking the under. That is a blank handicapper. The answers to that test would go line movement, system, trend, public, model. And I think that wraps up going over the six different types of sports bettors in the marketplace. Don't ever forget that the house is willing to gamble too, that they are part of this group as well. I will be back next week, likely with two slate breakdowns. Between now and then, do me a favor. Again, to remind you guys, the one thing that I would love from all of you is written reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever else this is posted, please give me a five stars and a written review. And I mean, if you could send this to a friend who you think is interested in sports gambling, woo, let's not get ahead of ourselves. All right, thank you guys. As always, talk to you next week. Peace out. 